Well, we are celebrating the return of two Go Beyond trips. If you were here last month, uh, we celebrated Go Beyond Initiative, which is our youth missions program. From third grade all the way through high school, we want our kids serving locally and then globally. By the end of their high school career, we want them going way overseas, right? So we had two Go Beyond trips that came back last week. Uh, the first one was uh, the trip to Peru. We sent uh, predominantly a bunch of high school girls down to uh, Peru to minister to other high school girls or middle school girls who were extremely uh, sexually abused in their hometowns. Now, this uh, uh, Paz y Esperanza shelter is the only shelter for women in all of the country of Peru. Now, why is that? Because in a lot of countries, uh, the, the abuse of children in particular goes unreported and unprosecuted. And so this shelter not only takes in these uh, girls who have been horrifically abused, some of them 12-year-old with kids by incest and rape. Not only do they take these kids in, but they actually create a legal fund to prosecute the perpetrator because if that country can just start prosecuting some of these abusers, then word will get out, this is no longer acceptable in our country. So it's quite a great ministry that we're partnering with, and to send high school girls down there to minister to these high school girls required quite a bit. And so there's a lot of great stories coming from that trip. The trip I was on, which came back last Sunday, was the Cuba trip. We took Rancho Christian's baseball team down there, and uh, we played six games in that sweltering heat in six days. And uh, God bless those kids. They were working real hard. They actually won four out of the six games, and they're playing 20-year-old, 20 and 30-year-olds. It was pretty cool. But we didn't go down there to win. Yeah, we didn't go down there to win. We went down there to share Christ, build relationship and share Christ. This was their second trip down there. Uh, I didn't go last year, um, but went this year, and it was great to see the connections that were being made with the church, connections made with other uh, baseball teams, uh, people in the community, players in the community. Our kids would uh, share their faith and share their testimony uh, with the other teams, with people that are in the stands and in, in homes. And in one home, uh, I went on a team to uh, a home of a community leader. Keep in mind, Cuba is a communist country, so there are formally um, determined community leaders to kind of be the watch guard over that community. So we were in the home of one of these, these community leaders, and she had the idols of Santeria all around her. Now, if you know anything about Santeria, it's African in origin, and because of the slave trade, Africans were taken from the African continent, sold all over uh, the Western world, including uh, Haiti and Cuba, and those two countries have a high presence of Santeria. African idol worship. Cuba is a very diverse country. There are people there who are clearly from a lineage of Spain, clearly there uh, who are more native to that uh, South American region, and clearly those who uh, were of African descent. Very, very diverse community. So we're in this lady's house, and she says, you know, clearly I'm of African descent, and she pointed to her skin, and she said, I am therefore obligated to honor my heritage and to worship the gods of my home country. And so I remembered Acts, I believe, chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul was talking to people who worshipped idols, and he said, listen, you have a thousand idols here. This lady only had 11. During the time of Paul, there was a thousand idols in Greece, and he said, have you worshipped them all? Do you know them all? And they said, well, we can't possibly know that we worship them all. Paul says, there is one that you're missing, and he happens to be the supreme God over all. He's the one true God. So we took that same tact with this, this uh, lady in her home. We said, are you sure that you have all of the gods that you need? You have 11 of them. Are you sure there's not a 12th one that you can sort of unlock the blessings of, right? 
Well, I don't know. There's no way to know. So let's introduce you to the one true God overall. And one of our students shared their testimony about a time in their hospital where, where his life was being threatened and he was surrounded by the love of God. Another student led that woman through the gospel presentation about how the death of Christ proves the love of God and, and took the sins of the world upon himself and rose again from the dead in victory. So our students are sharing their testimony and sharing their faith in wonderful ways. And at the end, this lady says, how can I receive this love? I said, well, you can receive it through prayer. So she says, well, I'm going to recite the Lord's Prayer then. She knew the Lord's Prayer, just another religious thing. No, it's not about a religious activity, right? We're inviting you to know God in a personal and powerful way, to know his love for you through his son, Jesus Christ, given for you. And then we prayed with her. I mean, it really was a wonderful time to talk about the oppression of religion that keeps people in fear and then the freedom offered in Jesus Christ. That religious oppression is the context of the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Last book of the Old Testament. So every book comes before it, and every book is a book of law and rules and regulations. Ten commandments, 613 other commandments, seven uh, feasts that must be obeyed. The Sabbath rules with 39 different segments of things that you cannot do on a Saturday, right? I mean, it is just a book replete with laws and rules and expectations. And the conclusion at the end of the New Testament through the book of Malachi, is that none of it did any good. That's the conclusion at the end of the Old Testament. None of it did any good. Let's look at the context of the book of Malachi. The, uh, the Israelites were under the oppression of the Persian Empire. I want to show you a map on the side screens of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was the largest empire ever to have existed in the history of humanity. The Persian Empire covered 44% of the global population of, of the earth, including Israel, which is that swath of land just uh, right of the Mediterranean Sea. So Israel was under the authority of the Persians. But the Persians didn't want to impose Persian culture. In fact, they allowed every people they conquered to practice their own culture and their own religion. And so they allowed the Israelites to practice the Jewish religion based on the Old Testament. And so they had every freedom they could possibly want. Uh, first of all, they had their city of Jerusalem built by the Persians. With Persian money, they rebuilt the capital city of Jerusalem and were sent to inhabit it. With Persian money, they rebuilt the temple that was at the center of their new capital. With Persian money, they canonized the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Bible were canonized while they were in captivity. And so they had their Old Testament complete. They had their law complete. They had religious ceremonies, feasts and festivals, seven of them every year that they could freely enjoy. They had their Sabbath rest that they could absolutely freely uh, adhere to, that day of rest. They had a strong Levitical priesthood. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were set aside specifically for the work of the temple, for the work of sacrifices and religious ceremonies. They had it all when it came to worship. Here was their expectation. They were so excited when they came back to Jerusalem. They were so excited to dedicate their temple. They were so excited to begin all of the rites and rituals and festivals of their religion. Their expectation was that if we do all of these things externally for God, then he's going to bring blessing upon blessing to us. And that didn't happen. They expected a savior would rise up to free them from the Persians. That didn't happen. They expected a global kingdom of Israel to cover the earth. That didn't happen. They expected more money, more health, more wealth, more pro prosperity. That didn't happen. So you know what their brain said? 
Their brain said this whole religious transaction thing isn't working. We are free to do all these religious services for God, and we are getting nothing in return. Therefore, their whole religious experience became a giant meh. That was their religious experience. Meh. Any of you guys use emojis? I'm a big emoji fan. I'm such a girl when it comes to emojis. It's emojis everywhere, right? I was probably the first man on planet Earth to use emojis hard. I went, all the other guys were making fun of me because I was using all these emojis. I, I, I need you to know what I'm feeling right now, right? And they all came later. So just for the record, right, they're, they're now using them. Um, this, that just, man, became their religion. It was this half-hearted thing because the religious transaction failed. The religious transaction failed. I do for God, he does for me. That's the religious transaction. They did all they were supposed to do. God did not meet their expectations. So they just went, well, I'm going to give God half-hearted worship, half-hearted sacrifices. I'm going to give God a half-hearted offering and whatever. And so the book of Malachi is written to wake them up and to call them back to what a walk with God is all about. It's not about the external things. It's about the internal things. It's about the heart. It's about relationship. But they had turned it into a religious ritual and nothing more. Just a religious ritual and nothing more. See, the reality is that religious systems based on the external always fail because it's a religious transaction that God never intends to keep. Religion says, hey, you do for God, he does for you. You meet God's expectations and he will pour prosperity on your life. He'll answer your prayers. He'll cure your diseases. You do for God, he does for you. It never, ever works. And it's not supposed to work. It is supposed to be a heartfelt relationship with God, whether things go well or not. It's a relationship of love, a relationship of care, a relationship of connection between God and his creation. Religion misses that and makes it into this external thing, this list of do's and don'ts in order to get something back from God. Religious systems based on the external always fail. Now, maybe you've had similar experiences. Maybe you've been involved in church life that was just a bunch of rules and regulations and it wasn't life-giving at all. I talked to a lot of people about their church life, especially growing up, and almost all of them say the exact same thing. When I was growing up in church, it was just a bunch of rules and regulations. You know, the pastor's up there telling us what to believe, and we're just duty-bound to believe it. pastor's up there telling you how to live because apparently he's got it all together, and we are just bound to live the way he tells us to, right? Nothing really life-transforming about church life because it's just religion. A lot of meaningless rituals with no relevance to real life. A bunch of false promises. You obey God, he's going to answer your prayers. You obey God, he'll prosper you. You obey God, he'll heal you. It's the false promises of religion that never, ever works. A lot of little arguing and debates about this and that, doctrine, this and that, rule and regulation. I mean, it's just the oppression of religion. And that's not just in Cuba. That's not just during the time of Malachi. That's right here and right now, and that's most people. Most people. That's why God says in Malachi 1.10, and I think this is the theme verse of Malachi. Steve detailed it uh, last week. God says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. Just somebody, one person, shut the whole operation down. Close the doors of the temple, lock it. No more priesthood, no more sacrifice, no more obeying laws. We're done with the whole sham of religion. This is God saying that. 
If it's all about just this religious transaction of doing for God so he can do back for you, shut the doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. It's a strong language, very strong language. See, the religious system was designed by God to utterly fail. The religious system was designed by God to utterly fail. Because religion isn't supposed to make us right with God. I mean, how many people can obey fully the laws of any religion? Can anybody? No one can. So a religious system is designed by God to fail. Now, why would God design something to fail? Well, God designed something to fail so that it would expose just how much our own works can never get us to God. Our obedience to the law can never make us perfect. We simply can't do it. We are flawed, failed human beings. So God gave us the law to show how much we would fail and to point us to a savior. We need a savior. Hebrews 7.18 says this, the law is set aside because it was weak and useless. This is the law God gave to his people. God gave a weak and useless law to his own people to show the whole world that we cannot earn anything from God, that we fail time and time and time again. The law cannot make anything perfect. The law can't make anything perfect. The law can't make anything perfect, and the people that are responsible for stewarding the law can't make anything perfect. Those are the priests. So in Malachi chapter 2, God turns his attention to the priests. And now this admonition is for you. This is God talking to the priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you. Then he talks about rubbing their face with the dung of their silly sacrifices. I mean, it gets pretty graphic. God is using very strong language here. If it's all about religion, you do for me so I can do for you, shut the doors of your temple, stop the whole work of the priesthood, stop with the sacrifices, stop with it all. We've got to be done with it. Hebrews 7.28 says this, the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. So not only is the law weak, but the leaders of the law are weak. The whole system breaks down. The whole religious system is designed to fail, to show us we cannot make ourselves perfect by obedience or by following priests. Now listen, it is world famous how much pastors and priests fail, right? I mean, it's everywhere. We all know it. It's just a given. Pastors and priests fail. There's a lot of controversy about why priests and pastors fail. I use the word priests and pastor interchangeable. Priest is, of course, Catholic and Orthodox. Pastor is more the Protestant... Uh, and mainline uh, evangelicals. So pastors and priests are very famous for failing. And it's understandably, you know, a terrible thing when somebody who professes to be a messenger of God fails. I suppose it could be argued that if you're a pastor or a priest, you should be held to a little bit of a higher standard. I get that. But the reality is every pastor and every priest is just as human as everyone who's not. Is that a fair statement? We are all equally human. Now, when somebody who is not a pastor or a priest fails, there's harm for sure, but it's not like the guns come out to fire away. But boy, when a pastor or priest fails, I'm not talking about hurting children. I'm talking about failing in a way that, you know, you're breaking a marriage vow or you, you embezzle money, just things that are terrible, right? But when a pastor or priest fails, it's, it defames seemingly 
God's name and creates huge ripples of, of grief. And I understand that. But we also have to be a little sympathetic that they are just as human as anyone else. We're about to celebrate Rancho's 50th anniversary here in Temecula, which we're excited about. 2018 will be the 50th anniversary year of Rancho. Got a lot of cool stuff planned. I've been a part of Rancho for 40 of those years. I remember when I was a kid, uh, just coming to Rancho on occasion, Christmas and Easter, um, an associate pastor, there's only two pastors, the associate pastor failed morally, broke his marital vows, just about split the church in half. 16 years ago, a very prominent pastor here at Rancho uh, cheated on his uh, wife, and we started a five-year, very painful reconciliation process with his marriage and back to his ministry. So after five years of walking with him, one of the first things we did on the new campus next door was to reordain him for his ministry. It was a very cool uh, process we went through. Eight years ago, uh, we started noticing that some money out of the petty cash that we had in our offices upstairs was disappearing, just slowly disappearing. So we put up a fake camera up there, and we caught one of our pastors with a screwdriver breaking into an office and breaking into a desk and stealing petty cash. That was eight years ago. So we look at the history of Rancho, and we can point to three areas of moral failure among our, our pastors. And that's a sad thing. It creates huge consequences. There's no question about it. No question about it. There's also not a year that goes by in Temecula where a senior pastor in the area doesn't morally fail and break his marital vows. Two happened last year. Um, in one of those instances, I was talking to a mutual friend who's also a pastor, and I just asked, hey, how he was doing, and he was just grieving the failure of his pastor friend, and, and he said this, and I want to actually show it to you, and it's very disturbing. He says, the stage is intoxicating. He's talking about the stage of a church. The stage is intoxicating. And, and as I heard those words, I almost threw up in my mouth. They're disturbing words. First of all, that this is called a stage. Now, I know it looks like a stage, <laughs> But for a leader to consider this a stage is a very disturbing thing. Why? Because a stage implies performance. A stage implies entertainment. A stage implies, uh, you know, a need for approval and a need for affirmation. That's what a stage implies. This should never be considered a stage where leaders are intoxicated by an audience or intoxicated by um, approval from other people. But I'm telling you, if a minister lets his humanity be weak and, and, it, and allows his ego to get caught up in it, I'm telling you, it can be intoxicating. Where, where people can start believing the things that they're told, like you're the anointed one, you're a pastor, you're reverend. I mean, even around here, we used to call pastors reverend. Like Jesus says, don't call me reverend. So why are we calling each other reverend? Uh, it, it can be this very ego-building thing. Now, oh, pastor, good word today. You changed my life. You saved my marriage. And you get people kind of wanting to, to, to serve you. It becomes very odd. And if we let our ego get the best of us for even a second, the stage can be intoxicating. The, the pastors and priests have to work very, very hard to make sure this never becomes a stage for performance and approval. We have to work very, very hard at that. And so we try in many ways to make sure our pastors stay very humble. The pastor priests ought to put themselves second in every relationship. Put themselves second at home, put themselves second in, in church, among the staff, in the community. I usually don't wear a lot of bling, but I'm wearing this thing right here. I usually only wear my wedding ring because I can't stand anything else on me. But this is the bracelet we wore in Cuba. And it says, I am second. I am second. 
And this was a reminder why we're going to Cuba. We're going to Cuba to serve. We're going to Cuba to take second place so everybody else can go before us. The baseball team wore a hat that says, Yo soy segundo, which means what? I am second. The uh, jersey that the team wore, the name of the team, Yo soy segundo. And the number of every single player is the number two, right? The number two. Um, Anyway, it was fun. But we were in the Cuban airport on the way into the country. And uh, there's a a guy there, kind of a big Cuban, big macho Cuban. And uh, I say that because there's a profile of a macho Cuban. And he looks at all these, um, you know, high school age kids with their baseball kind of gear on. And he says, "Uh, yo soy segundo, what is that? And the kids said, well, this is the name of our baseball team. He started laughing and said, that's stupid. What athletic team is going to say, we are second, we are, we're number two, right? I mean, it's kind of silly. So he's making fun of it. What a stupid name of a team. And we said, well, you know, your super tight shirt and five gold chains is pretty stupid, but we're not making fun. No, no, we didn't say that. <laughs> we were all thinking that, but we weren't saying that. And we said, well, the reason why we have all this Yo Soy Segundo gear is because we're here to learn from the Cuban people, to be humble in your country, and to serve wherever we can. And he thought immediately, oh, that's so cool. And he became our number one fan, right? And, and so if we take that posture as, as leaders to be able to say, you know, we're here to serve, not to be served. Isn't that what Jesus said? And so if leaders start, start elevating themselves or being intoxicated by their position, a ton of bad things can happen. We need to go back to the original calling of the priest, which is found in Malachi 2, 5, and 6. God says, my covenant was with Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, set aside for leadership as priests. My covenant was with Levi, a covenant of life and peace. It's a covenantal relationship. That's from the inside out. It's a relationship of the heart, loving unconditionally, being loved by God unconditionally, and loving unconditionally. That's the covenant that was made to the priests, a covenant of life and peace. Religion brings death. Religion sucks out life. Religion sucks out peace. But priests are supposed to be in relationship with God, bringing life and peace to the world around them. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. That's the original calling of the priesthood, the leadership in the church among God's people, to be humble in relationship with God, bringing life and peace. But if we start getting to the center of some stage for personal affirmation or accolades, we turn this into a very self-centered thing, and priests can be corrupt. Pastors and priests can be corrupt, and all kinds of terrible things can happen. Now, you might think Malachi 2 is for the pastors and priests. You'd be right, but I also want to show you 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9 says to all of us that we are a chosen people, We are a royal priesthood. Did you get that? It's not just the pastors who take the role of the priest. It is all of us. We are all priests. What is a priest? According to Malachi, a priest is in a covenant relationship with God, a relationship of love, bringing life and peace to others. In Christ, we are all priests. Not just me, not just our staff. All of us are priests. We can essentially say to each other that we are all shepherds, we are all pastors, we are all priests because we are all in relationship with God by his grace and we are all bringing life and peace to the world around us. 
So let's not elevate anybody. Let's not elevate any teacher. Let's not elevate any pastor. In fact, for about five years around Rancho, we refused to call anybody pastor because we believed that something was not quite right in the pastoral culture, not just here, but just generally. We had to set the culture of the minister right. We had issues with what men were called, with what women were called. That was different, paying people different. We just had a lot of funky things about this idea of pastor and who was a pastor. So we spent five years just setting that right before we called anybody pastor. And now we believe we can call people, whether they're staff or volunteers, people who are stepping up to shepherd other people, to bring life and peace to the world around them, we believe we can now use that word appropriately because we understand that we're not elevating anybody. In fact, the further you go in leadership in the church, the further down the totem pole you go. Have you seen those uh, you know, org chart triangles in companies, right? You got the peons down here and then the, you know, the managers and middle managers and the, uh, you know, C-level and then the, e anyway, you got it, right? In the church of God, it's upside down. It's a, a quest for the bottom so that we can serve more and more people. Once we get that right, then we can all look to each other and say, hey, listen, to some degree or another, we are all pastors. We are all priests in covenant relationship with God bringing life and peace to this world. So we see in Malachi that the law failed. We see in Malachi that the priesthood fails. But I want us to show, I want to show you one more thing. Hebrews 7, 27 says this. Unlike the other high priests, the high priests who failed, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Malachi highlights the failure of the priesthood that could not bring anyone close to God. The law can't bring us close to God. Priests can't bring us close to God. It's all designed to fail. Looking forward to a savior, a new high priest who would come. And that new high priest is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came not having to offer an animal sacrifice for his own sins. Why? He's sinless. Jesus didn't come as a high priest to offer an animal to pay for our sins, an animal cannot pay for the sins of mankind. So as a perfect high priest who is the son of God, he offered himself as the sacrifice. He was sacrificed on a cross to pay once for all for the sins of the world. Any sin I have ever committed or will commit, forgiven in Christ. Any sin you have committed or ever will commit, already forgiven in Christ because he's a perfect high priest who paid for the sins of the world once for all. So we do not rely on the law and we do not rely on priests or pastors to get us to God. All of that has failed. Jesus Christ is the high priest that was promised to truly bring us in relationship with God, to give us his righteousness as a gift. He obeyed the law for us so we don't have to and he gave his life as a sacrifice to pay for sin so we don't have to pay for the consequence of our own sin. We are free, free from sin, free from the penalty of sin, and free from religion. And all of that is accepted by grace through faith in Christ. If you came here today under any burden of law that you're not good enough or right enough or moral enough or religious enough or, or, or doctrinally correct enough, if you came with any burden of fear of religion, you can leave here today absolutely free in Christ. Your high priest who paid for your sin in full and gives you new and eternal life freely. And as that woman who was caught up in Santeria asked, how can I receive this? The answer is we can receive it through prayer 
right now. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you for your love for us expressed through Jesus Christ, who came as the high priest, not from the lineage of mankind who is prone to failure and ego, but God, he comes from you, his heavenly Father, the only begotten Son of God, came to earth sinless, not having to provide a sacrifice for his own sin, and not offering a sacrifice of an animal, but giving his own life to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. So God, we thank you for your love through Christ. Thank you that we do not have to uh, be bogged down in the oppression of religion, doing for you so that you could do for us this transaction of, of recompense and this transaction of religion that goes nowhere and is ineffective and weak. God, we want to be free from that. We want, as Malachi says, a relationship with you that is covenantal, receiving your covenantal love for us and loving in return, bringing life and peace to the world around us. God, we trust in Jesus as our high priest, but we want to be faithful priests as well, not getting derailed by ego or wanting anything from you or from others, but to live a life of humble service to people around us so that the world around us would be full of life and peace that comes from you, our Heavenly Father, through Christ your Son. In his name we pray, amen.